Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Emma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Non-Hodgkin's Lymphoma, Current Treatment Progress. And today's activity is supported by a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. And I want to just acknowledge that we have many participants on the call today. There's over 210 participants who come from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Colombia, Cyprus, Egypt, India, Iran, Italy, Nepal, Pakistan, and the United Kingdom. So it's a, a global call. And it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Andrew Evans. Dr. Evans is Associate Vice Chancellor, Clinical Innovation and Data Analytics, Rutgers Biomedical and Health Sciences, Associate Director, Clinical Services, Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, System Director of Medical Oncology and Oncology Lead for, for RWJ Barnabas Rutgers Medical Group, RWJ Barnabas Health Professor of Medicine, Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. And Dr. Evans will be addressing an overview of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, signs and symptoms in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu, and NHL subtypes, staging and subtypes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Evans. Dr. Mesner, thank you so much uh, for that nice introduction and great to be here uh, with with my uh, good friends and colleagues, Dr. Poe and Dr. Haberman. So yes, I'll talk about signs and symptoms, subtypes and staging. Uh, and first, in terms of sign and symptoms of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, it, like many things, it, as I'm going to talk about, can be heterogeneous. Uh, there are some times that some patients will present with slowly or sometimes even not so slow increasing size of lymph nodes. Everybody has lymph nodes throughout the body, hundreds of small lymph nodes in the neck, in the chest, in the abdomen, etc. But usually they're fairly small, less than one centimeter or so, and sometimes those can start to enlarge. They can be found on a routine physical exam or sometimes a, a patient can find them and that can be the only presentation. Other times across the spectrum, a patient could be a little bit more ill. Sometimes we don't frankly know why, but the lymphoma can cause systemic symptoms. We use a terminology called B, B as in boy, symptoms, B symptoms, which means drenching night sweats. And when we say night sweats due to lymphoma, it means changing your bed clothes three, four, five times a night, high persistent fevers and unintentional weight loss of 10, 20, 30, or, or more pounds. Uh, that's not a, I would say that's a minority of patients who can have that. But also, um, ultimately, what is lymphoma? 
In its purest form, you can say it's a cancer of the lymphocytes. And where are lymphocytes? Um, ultimately, it comes, uh, like all blood cells, inside our bone marrow, inside our bones, and then is into the bloodstream. And, of course, we know the bloodstream is everywhere. So, in a way, even though these lymphocytes do localize in our lymph nodes, and you see that presentation, um, in some cases, we it can uh, be found in other places in the body, sometimes, believe it or not, in the bones, in the liver, in the kidney. And depending on that presentation, as you might imagine, you might have an abnormal blood test that picks that up or on a certain imaging scan. At the um, end of the day, the only way we know for sure outside of, of course, blood tests or imaging studies like something called a CAT scan or a PET scan are suggestive, ultimately a biopsy is needed. And there's different types of biopsies that, that I won't get too uh, in detail about, but we rely on our pathology experts who are almost like detectives putting together a, a puzzle of trying to tell us not just, yes, this is non-Hodgkin lymphoma, but moreover, what exact subtype. But one, one other quick comment before I talk about subtypes is just in the context of COVID and influenza or other infections, how do we discern a diagnosis or pre presentation of lymphoma? Sometimes you could say maybe those, those signs and symptoms mimic it, but usually with COVID and influenza, as you might imagine, those usually come on fairly abruptly. And thankfully, over hopefully several days, uh, maybe a couple weeks, they resolve. If a patient has high, high fever and other really significant symptoms, it will not spontaneously resolve. It would persist. So, of course, uh, if someone is ill with fevers and other symptoms, they should seek care through the primary care doctor, and an infectious workup would certainly be much more common than a lymphoma diagnosis. But going back to diagnosis, yes, we rely on our pathologist. And what what we say, and it's, it is true, uh, believe it or not, lymphoma is not one disease, just like the clinical presentation is heterogeneous. Uh, believe it or not, there are, are more than 80, 80 different subtypes. And, and that's just what's recorded in our classification uh, systems. And that's based on a couple different factors. We, at the really tall order, we say B-cell lymphoma or T-cell lymphoma, but there are many different types of each. And again, we rely on our pathology colleagues, and, and it's really a mixture of what the cells look like under the microscope, as well as, as in many cancers and diseases for that matter, we rely on so-called molecular studies, where there are certain molecular findings, uh, chromosomal changes, so to speak, that ha have certain genetic uh, ab abnormalities that we can detect that will help label this as a specific lymphoma subtype. Because it sounds like a lot, well, uh, 80 subtypes, and if you include molecular studies, it might be over 100 subtypes. But in a way, it's a good thing because we, the more we can parse out the little different lymphoma subtypes, the better we can find individualized treatments for certain lymphoma subtypes, whether it's based on a molecular study or a location in the body or all of it together. And we're just always doing great amounts of data to understand what are the best treatments for the certain patient at the certain time in the certain location of the body. So all of it is, is very important. I'll just uh, finish in the last couple minutes talking about staging. And, and we say, obviously, every patient is unique, but it's always the same first two steps. 
the diagnosis of the exact lymphoma subtype, as I just alluded to, and then and that's really the most important and, frankly, what drives the best treatment options, as you'll hear about from my colleagues. But then number two is so-called staging. Now, staging's a little different. I won't call it unimportant compared to other cancers, but as I alluded to, that if this is in the blood, we've known for decades, generally speaking, it's a whole body disease. That's why surgery, for the most part, is not a treatment. It's just a diagnosis for us. We typically will have treatment throughout the whole body. There might be some certain cases where radiation is applied. But the staging is telling us basically where it is. And it's actually pretty straightforward. It's outside of basic blood studies. Sometimes we'll do a special blood study called flow cytometry of the blood. But really it's something called a PET scan that is, in a way you could say, radio-labeled glucose that will tell us not only location and size, but also gives a metabolic activity that will look out through, through the whole body. That's really the cornerstone. There's some patients that still need some other testing. We want to sometimes know, is it hiding in the bone marrow? Not all cases, but some will do a bone marrow biopsy. There's other uh, nuanced situations. Sometimes we'll do something even called a lumbar puncture to see if it's in the spinal fluid. Uh, there are other testing we'll do that's more preparing for potential chemotherapy, like an echocardiogram or pulmonary function test. But the, the real cornerstone, again, is that baseline PET scan. Sometimes it'll just be a CT scan, but normally it, it is a PET scan. And that really serves as a baseline, because whether it's often in five places or 25 places, very often the treatment is the same. But, of course, wherever it is in the body, we want to make sure it goes away. Uh, that's our goal for, for most cases, that we garner a complete remission. And that might serve as a good time to, to, for me to stop and transition to my colleagues. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Evans. That was really um, outstanding and a wonderful way to start the program and to set the stage for NHL. And so thank you so much. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Tom Thomas Haberman, and Dr. Haberman is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And Dr. Haberman will be addressing indolent and aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, relapsed and refractory non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and novel treatment approaches. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haberman. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner. It's a privilege to be here with you, Dr. Andy Evans, Dr. Christina Poe, and Ms. Cohen. When I started as a fellow in 1982, 40 years ago, I had no idea lymphoma treatment would have changed so significantly. The outcomes have improved so remarkably, especially in the most recent decade. Although much has been learned in the past decade with regard to genomics and lymphoproliferative disorders, it's really the treatment that has dramatically changed the outcomes. And clinical trials, which some of you have participated in, have changed and will change the landscape. Peripheral blood stem cell transplant came along in the 70s, and this improved the outcomes in patients with relapse and refractory aggressive lymphomas and are still used as treatments in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma, and others. CD19 and CD20 antigens are present on most B-cell lymphomas, and anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody therapy initially for tuximab by Genentech was the first monoclonal antibody approved in malignancies in the 1990s and then has been followed by biosimilars, and this has changed the landscape dramatically the last 25 years. 
most recently CAR T-cell therapy for relapse refractory to fuselage B-cell lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, and mantle cell lymphoma have significantly improved outcomes in patients with relapse disease. I'm only going to cover four lymphoma subtypes, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, follicular, mantle cell, and T-cell lymphoma. We'd be happy to answer other questions in the Q&A. The theme, different drugs with different mechanisms of action and cellular therapy is pervades. With diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, the initial treatment has been our CHOP chemotherapy as a standard of care for 25 years, and almost 25 trials have not improved upon this. A recent trial just published the Polarex trial randomized patients with RCHOP versus polituzumab, an antibody drug conjugate targeting CD79B with a toxic payload, MMAE, with RCHIP, has resulted in improved progression-free survival. This is undergoing regulatory approval review in different countries. Treatment of relapse disease is based on whether patients are determined to be fit or not fit and can be age-related also. CAR T-cell therapy and peripheral blood stem cell transplant are the mainstays of treatment. CAR T-cell therapy is a cellular therapy in which patients' T-cells are enhanced by the addition of an engineered gene. The T-cells are genetically modified to produce special receptors on their surface called chimeric antigen receptors or CARs, and this allows them to recognize and kill malignant cells. There are three CAR T-cell products that are now FDA-approved in third-line and later setting, including axocabdogene silalusil, tisangenolic-lusil, and lysocabdogene miralusil. Two of these three have been in randomized trials versus auto stem cell transplant and have improved, reported improved outcomes. In patients who are unfit or with subsequent relapse, there are new alternatives that have evolved, especially over the last decade. Tafacitumab, an anti-CD19 monoclonal antibody with lenalidomide, resulted in significant improvement in overall survival in patients who achieved a complete remission. Polituzumab vidotin with bendamustine rituximab improved outcomes versus bendamustine rituximab. Lancastuximab to serine, a CD19 antibody, this with an alkylating agent conjugate that interacts with DNA-inducing cell death, produces significant responses in half the patients. Selenixer is another unique inhibitor. Other chemo regimens are also quite effective, rituximab, gemcitabine, and oxyplatinum, and other regimens like that. And bispecific antibodies, which I'll discuss with follicular lymphoma, are now an evolving approach. What about follicular lymphoma? The initial treatment in follicular lymphoma has been monoclonal antibody therapy with incorporation of anti-CD20 antibodies, which include rituximab and biosimilars, and they continue to be the standard of care up front. Long-term follow-up with single-agent rituximab trials, such as the American Resort trial, have suggested that retreatment strategy is a very effective approach. In advanced disease, Dr. Andy Evans was the first trial was the first author in the trial and led the trial of bendamustine rituximab. And in, in this was a three-arm study that report, reported that the uh, standard of care uh, uh, continues to be a, a bendamustine rituximab approach up front. 
The event-free and overall survival in over 6,000 patients was evaluated in 11 prospective international cohorts and reported that the event-free survival was higher in the bendamustine rituximab era in a study first authored by Dr. Matt Maurer at Mayo Clinic. Another alternative is another antibody, abinutuzumab, with bendamustine and abinutuzumab maintenance and the progression-free survival in a meta-analysis of seven different trials uh, was reported to have a progression-free survival that was superior. In a study that we did in a LEO consortium of eight institutions in the United States, what's really fascinating in patients who received three or more lines of therapy, the majority of patients were alive at five years, and this is extremely encouraging and really indicates how these other therapies are beginning to make an impact. Lenalidomide as an immunomodulatory drug, an oral drug, in the augment, in the augment trial with Again, rituximab added, was recently reported to have an improved overall survival at the American Society of Hematology meeting in December of 2022. CAR T-cell therapy can be very effective in this setting. The ZUMA-5 trial with axacabdogene psilolaclusal in patients who had greater than two lines of therapy had a very high complete remission rate of 79%. And now we're in the world of a potential off-the-shelf approach of bispecific antibody therapies. There are now four agents undergoing evaluation internationally. Mosentuzumab, a CD20, CD3 bispecific antibody, has very high overall response rates, as does glofitimib, which is a CD20, CD3 T-cell-engaging bispecific antibody in combination with the benetuzumab. We can even get more specific with an EZH2 inhibitor, tesmetostat, which has significant response rates. So what about mantle cell lymphoma? Mantle cell lymphoma is a disease we, we, we approach in a potential age-based approach. One approach is to uh, take patients under the age of 60 and under into a very aggressive regimen approach, such as R-CHOP alternating with R-DHEP, and then a peripheral blood, cell, peripheral blood cell stem cell transplant. And this is still considered a standard of care internationally. Interestingly, in 2020, December of 2022, at the American Society of Hematology meeting this year, the European Mental Cell Network reported on the Triangle Clinical Trial which reported that the current standard of high-dose regimen was not superior to an ibrutinib-containing regimen without a peripheral blood stem cell transplant. In, these, in this trial, patients were treated with RCHOP alternating with ibrutinib and RDHAP followed by ibrutinib maintenance, and this was not inferior to the standard of care which has been peripheral blood stem cell transplant. The value of ibrutinib maintenance hasn't really been determined with other regimens, but rituximab maintenance in this disease has been a standard of care. So what about patients over the age of 60? In a recent update of a trial of ecog Akron E1411 confirmed a high remission rate with bendamustine rituximab with rituximab-based consolidation, which confirmed other international observations. Another approach would be to add cytosine arabinoside, which has a very high uh, complete remission rate. What about 
the treatment of relapsed and refractory disease. The Bruton kinase inhibitors, such as abrutinib and acalabrutinib, have very high response rates. And the CAR T-cell therapy with axacabdogene psilolucleusil had complete remission rate reported at 79%. Lastly, we have peripheral T-cell lymphoma. And Dr. Christina Poe has an interest in this disease and will likely comment. In general, the approach has been a CHOP-based therapy. Interestingly, in one of the subsets, the Echelon 2 trial reported that the addition of an antibody drug conjugate, rentoximabidotin, added to cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and prednisone improved the overall survival versus CHOP. So in summary, unprecedented and remarkable progress has been made in the non-Hodgkin lymphomas in the initial treatment and in relapse settings. The field has gone from chemotherapy to immunochemotherapy to antibody therapy to immunoconjugates to specific inhibitors to CAR T-cell therapies to bispecific antibodies, and all are complemented by clinical data that helps us understand what responses really mean add to the interpretation of real-world data, something Dr. Evans is very interested in, and epidemiologic data, which have all improved lymphoma outcomes for individual patients, providing remarkable hope. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hopperman. That was really outstanding, a wonderful presentation, a lot of wonderful information for our participants, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is... Dr. Christina Poe. Dr. Poe is physician, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, clinical assistant professor, Division of Medical Oncology, University of Washington School of Medicine. And Dr. Poe will be addressing the role of clinical trials, how research increases your treatment options, your comfort level with adherence, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and quality of life, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up appointments, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Poe. Hello, everyone. Uh, first off, I'd like to thank Dr. Mesner and her team for this wonderful opportunity to be here today, along with my amazing colleagues, Dr. Evans and Dr. Haberman. I'd like to spend the next few minutes discussing some of the logistics of lymphoma treatment, uh, starting off with a discussion regarding clinical trials. So what is a clinical trial? That's a question I actually get asked quite often in practice. And many of my patients tell me that when they hear the words clinical research or clinical trials, their mind automatically wanders to placebo treatments, uh, sometimes even sugar pills. And really, that, that couldn't be any further from the true, true spirit of, of clinical research. The NIH defines a clinical trial as a research study in which one or more human subjects are prospectively assigned to one or more interventions to evaluate the effects of those interventions on health-related biomedical or behavioral outcomes. And so, in other words, the clinical trial is a study that seeks to answer a medical question by providing a type of treatment or intervention that is not yet accepted as the standard of care. Our overarching goal, and I think this speaks for all of us, is to cure lymphoma. And uh, we want to do that by increasing the effectiveness of any treatment 
uh, with the least possible toxicities. And so the medical questions being asked um, and the clinical trials being designed by lymphoma researchers and experts seek to address this goal. There are many different types of clinical trials. Most of us are uh, most familiar with therapeutic clinical trials, which involves a certain type of treatment. Um, but there are also other clinical trials which look at effective prevention or screening of a disease. There are other trials that look to describe the side effects of certain diseases or drugs, which can lead to guidelines on supportive care. In addition, clinical trials cover a wide range of study designs. Some trials are designed for patients who have not yet had any cancer treatment, while others are for patients who have progressed on some of the standard of care treatments. Some trials are randomized, blinded, controlled trials, where there are a group of patients who are randomized to get the experimental treatment combination, uh, and that usually involves the trial drug with a standard of care treatments, while other patients are randomized to the control arm, and these patients may get a placebo with the standard of care treatment. Some other clinical trials don't have a control arm at all, and every patient on that study gets the same treatment. Clinical trials can also come in different stages or phases, and they usually follow a particular timeline from early, small-scale phase one studies to late-stage, large-scale phase three studies. Phase one studies focus on the safety of a treatment. And so questions that are being asked during this phase is, for example, what are the side effects of this treatment? And is it safe to use uh, at the same time as other medications? Phase two studies focus on the efficacy of a treatment. Is this medication or treatment effective in treating the targeted lymphoma subtype? A phase three clinical trial seeks to confirm the efficacy of the treatment by comparing it to the other standard of care treatments for the particular lymphoma subtype. And so questions being asked here are, in this novel treatment, more effective, less effective, or just as effective as the current standard of care? And a phase three clinical trial can involve up to thousands of patients and usually last several years. Favorable phase three clinical trial results usually lead to an FDA approval of the treatment if the treatment has not already been approved before that. And lastly, phase four involves long-term follow-up to gather long-term benefits and risks of the treatment. And so as you can see, uh, for a drug to be developed, it undergoes a long process that takes many, many years. And throughout every phase of clinical trial design, development, conduct, analysis, and follow-up, there is very stringent oversight. So there are multiple regulatory boards ranging from the institutional level all the way up to the FDA. Uh, and these regulatory boards check in at every stage to make sure that the clinical trial or study is conducted properly with the safety and benefits of the patient in mind. The study questions and design are vetted extensively, and so every active study truly has a good and sound rationale. There are benefits for a patient to be involved in a clinical trial. Uh, most importantly, trials increases a patient's treatment options. So for every lymphoma subtype, especially the, the rare ones, there are so many, uh, there, and there are um, a certain number of treatment options in the toolbox, and those can be used and uh, we can take it out one at a time 
and use them. But for the occasional patient who runs through most of those standard of care options, a clinical trial provides access to a new treatment before it is commercially available. And this could potentially keep the lymphoma under control and prolong patient's life. But even if there are good treatment options available, clinical trials can still offer uh, a chemotherapy-free treatment approach, potentially a more effective treatment approach, or a less toxic treatment approach. So regardless of the stage of lymphoma um, or the subtype or where a patient is at in their treatment, clinical trials can be beneficial for everybody. Um, and, and, you know, for the greater good, it also advances our understanding of lymphoma and expands treatment options for future patients with the disease. Um, Dr. Haberman just discussed a wide array, a very comprehensive review of all the drugs that have been approved in the last few years, and really all those drugs were approved through, through clinical trials. There are many resources to help find clinical trials in our areas. Um, your doctor is always a good resource to start with. And in addition, uh, nearby academic institutions uh, usually have um, a website that lists all the active clinical trials available there. The Leukemia Lymphoma Society, the Lymphoma Research Foundation uh, has resources as well. And clinicaltrials.gov is a database of clinical trials uh, conducted around the world. So I'm going to switch gears uh, to discuss some general guidelines uh, for managing side effects and maintaining quality of life while on lymphoma treatment. Every medication or treatment regimen has its own side effect profile, and every patient tolerates each side effect differently. And the definition of a good quality of life, or vice versa, an unacceptable quality of life, is really different for everyone. And so it's really extremely important for patients at their healthcare team to be on the same page and have a frank discussion regarding quality of life concerns with each proposed treatment option. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Two of the keys to effectively managing the side effects of any treatment is prevention and expectation. For example, some side effects occur around the same time of each treatment cycle, and therefore expecting that that particular side effect is going to occur and utilizing appropriate supportive medications to mitigate symptoms usually help. It is also important to realize that uh, supportive medications are designed to help lessen the severity of the side effects and make them tolerable, but not all the side effects will completely disappear despite the best supportive care. And similarly, adhering to a treatment schedule is also very important to ensuring the success of the treatment. So the kinetics and half-lives of the drugs that make up each treatment have previously been extensively researched, and the treatment schedule was designed to achieve maximum effectiveness, yet be safe. And so failure to adhere to a treatment schedule may lead to cancer resistance and bad outcomes. So patients should let their healthcare team know if there are any concerns about their treatment schedule. And if toxicity is an issue, oftentimes doses of medications can be adjusted or supportive medications can be incorporated to make it more tolerable. So I'm going to spend the last minute or so talking about telemedicine. So the COVID pandemic has greatly affected multiple aspects of cancer care, one being a shift from in-person visits to telemedicine appointments. 
And since then, telemedicine has only grown, and many patients who were unable to receive optimal care due to issues with distance um, or transportation, and those who were unable to obtain second or third opinions before are now able to from the comfort uh, of their own homes. Um, there are several guidelines which will help to facilitate an efficient telemedicine visit. So for example, before the visit, patients should make sure they have the correct technology and details to attend the visit. So if one is attending a Zoom visit, they should make sure that they have the correct website login, the link, good internet connection, know the appointment time, and log in at least 15 minutes before to allow for time to troubleshoot any technical issues that may arise. Patients should come prepared to the visit with a list of topics they want to make sure are covered or concerns they want addressed. And once connected with the team, Patients should address any privacy concerns they may have regarding the telemedicine visit, include any family or friends in the visit to help write down the information received and participate in the discussion. And lastly, before the visit ends, patients should make sure that they know the plan moving forward, receive any orders for labs or tests that need to be performed, and have a good method of contact for the healthcare team if any problems arise. Open Notes is a part of the Federal 21st Century Cures Act that was implemented about several years ago now, and that specified that a doctor's clinical notes must be available free of charge to patients. So after the visit, patients should review their doctor's clinical notes, which will usually summarize the discussion and reiterate the plan. And just like everything, telemedicine has its strengths and weaknesses. Unfortunately, a detailed physical exam cannot be conducted through telemedicine. And many in-person visit elements, such as touch, physical presence, and the, that emotional or social connection uh, may be blunted. But just as we discussed previously, telemedicine is also beneficial in multiple aspects. And there have been studies that show that uh, telemedicine has led to improved patient satisfaction um, in, in, in cancer care. With that, I'm going to end there and hand it over to Dr. Messner. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Poe. That was outstanding. Just a wonderful, wonderful presentation and um, lots of uh, information for our participants. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care's free programs and services, and, um, and then we'll please get your questions ready for the Q&A, so we'll have questions after this. So Cancer Care is a national organization offering free programs and services throughout the country. And we offer, um, we have a hope line, 1-800-813-4673, or one can visit our website, www.cancercare.org. And our services are many. We have about over 40 oncology social workers who will address any questions or concerns you may have. We do offer both practical and financial and co-payment assistance to people in the United States. We do offer online support groups. We do also offer help with home care, child care, and transportation. We also assist with 
a number of other services, including programs like this, these workshops. We offer publications as well. And if you go to our website, you'll be able to see the full range of services that we offer. And now we have time for questions, um, which is, I think, a very popular part of these programs. And so I'm going to uh, ask Emma to bring all of our speakers on board. I want to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Emma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And this is a question for Dr. Evans. Um, if I have a reoccurrence of NHL, would I be undergoing the same treatment regimen or a different treatment regimen? Is this a case-by-case -case basis? Yeah, it's for sure, it, even in the beginning, initial diagnosis, it's, it's always case-by-case. -case. What I would say is usually it's a different treatment regimen. Now, that's true especially for the more aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphomas that may come back within sometimes months or a couple years. There are some of the indolent lymphomas, in particular follicular lymphoma that Dr. Haberman talked about, that sometimes with an initial treatment you can garner not just years, sometimes more than a decade of a, of a remission. And in those cases, as you might imagine, you can reuse treatment in particular, something like rituximab. We don't know exactly why, but some patients will garner that very long remission and treatment-free interval, and you can reuse it in that case. So case by case, I would say more often than not, it ends up being a different treatment, but sometimes you can reuse the same one if there's a long treatment-free interval. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Haberman. How does the presence of, of a TP53 mutation deletion potentially affect the success of CAR T cell therapy for elapsed leukemia, leukemic non-nodal MCL? That's the million-dollar question in 2023. I think, uh, and maybe Andy and uh, Christina will have a different response, but I don't think we have enough long-term data that the real dilemma in mantle cell lymphoma is the TP53 deletion. At the time of presentation, we know that that's a very adverse uh, prognostic sign. And secondly, from the mantle cell network, uh, they reported a few years back that, that transplant really doesn't work well in that. And so, and with the present new drugs, the BTK inhibitors, are not as effective as they are in, in patients without the TP53 deletion. And so the next approach is that the hope is is that there will be a significant impact with CAR T-cell therapy. Andy, do you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, just, I, it, not, not too much, Tom. Uh, it's one that I think some of the early data looks like it may be active, or, or in other words, not a drastic difference with use of CAR-T in the P53 population, but obviously we need a lot more data. And I, I would just highlight there's different flavors or types of P53. There's P53 deleted, and then there's P53 mutated. And that latter one, which I think you were alluding to, where it's mutated are the ones that connote the, the, um, the more tough prognosis. But yeah, we just need more data, but at least we have CAR-T and bispecific antibodies and some other really good treatments coming down the pike. 
Excellent. And Christina, do you want to comment on this as well? Yeah, I completely agree with what has already been said. Um, the trial that led to the initial approval of CAR-T in mantle cell lymphoma um, showed that in that small subgroup of patients with TP53, CAR-T looked very promising. Um, but like what's already been said, the, the follow-up time short so far, and those patients, really the sample size is really small, so it's really hard to draw any um, meaningful conclusions from that. Okay, um, and um, and the question for Dr. Um, Poe um, is radiation is Christina, is radiation therapy recommended for localized disease? Um, I would say for certain um, lymphoma subtypes, radiation can definitely be used um, uh, for localized disease, especially lymph lymphoma subtypes like follicular lymphoma or marginal zone lymphoma. Um, in aggressive lymphoma subtypes like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, we worry that um, radiation alone, even if it's for localized disease, may not be enough. And so usually chemotherapy is um, added on. Um, and, and really this at the end then becomes more of a provider discretion um, to be to uh, truncated chemotherapy, a uh, shorter course of chemotherapy, and radiation, or do we just forego the radiation and just do chemotherapy? Um, so on a case-by-case -case basis and really dependent on lymphoma. Um, Tom, any comments to add there? I, yeah, I, I think you've covered it really well. I think in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma limited stage disease, I reviewed all this for the NCCN and had a short paper in 2021, and, and the response rates are so high to limited number of cycles, so it's different. It's four cycles, not six. And uh, in, 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 if it's PET-directed, and uh, there's some different trials, the FLYER trial, which only went to 60, but there's the... British Columbia Cancer Agency data, uh, which has very similar outcomes, uh, that the, the mainstay of treatment for limited stage disease in diffuse large B cell is is is, is our chop. And in in marginal zone, um, extranodal marginal zone lymphoma represents 60% of the marginal zone lymphomas, and in many subsets of that uh, of that disease, radiation therapy can be very effective. Thank you. Um, and a question for Andy. I'm several months into my treatment for NHL, and I'm wondering if there are any symptoms I should be watching out for during treatment. As a follow-up, what symptoms should I look out for after my treatment is complete? Yeah, sure. Part, part of that might depend on the exact lymphoma subtype and the treatment, but usually uh, the hope is the treatment is working, and if there were initial disease-related symptoms, like we had talked about, whether just enlarged lymph nodes or the B symptoms or some local symptom, hopefully those are better. And that, of course, would always be something to look out for down the road. Uh, of course, during treatment, the other quote-unquote symptom to just be cautious of will be any possible side effects due to the treatment. We always try to mitigate those and, and prevent, but sometimes, depending on the treatment, of course, there can be infections, something called neuropathy, irritation of the nerves with, with certain treatments. So 
I would imagine that that would be another concurrent discussion with the, uh, your healthcare team would be to what type of uh, symptoms or potential side effects I should be looking out for regarding the treatments. Because even though many of our treatments are targeted, in other words, not classic chemotherapy, at the end of the day, everything has a side effect. You, know, you, you hope it, it doesn't happen, or if you do, you catch it early. And, and in most cases, you can then make a modification to the treatment or help with some supportive care measure. Excellent. Um, and um, for Dr. Um, Haberman, can you speak about nutritional concerns with NHL? Thank you for any of the presenters. That also is a very complicated uh, question. And there's some studies that have been done, unfortunately, no randomized studies. We attempted to look at this in our SPORE grant at one point in time. And I go back to a study that came out of the Iowa Women's Health Study that green leafy vegetables and the cuneiforms, the patient, women who had diets that enriched for that had a decreased risk of getting a non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And so we really don't know what happens after you get the disease, but I go back to that kind of data. I secondly, I am neutral about supplements in, in this disease. Uh, we do know that uh, there's vitamin D deficiency has been associated with poor outcomes in the fuse large B-cell lymphoma. We have a trial we're trying to complete looking at that replacement therapy, uh, and we've reported the same thing in T-cell lymphoma. And so I, we do check vitamin D levels. If they're low, then we replace them. Uh, and that's uh, as far as I, I go in that, in that in 2023. Uh, it's a very complex area. And maybe I, I appreciate the other two responding. Yeah, I, I would just dovetail. I, I mean, I totally agree. I, I would just dovetail, even go a step further and say just to be – I'm neutral as well, but I, I caution against supplements over the counter. Just as, as everyone probably knows, most of those are not regulated, and you don't know what's in the ingredients, and there's there's some data even that it can cause more toxicity or, God forbid, interfere with the anti-lymphoma treatment. So I would just – Always recommend caution, modesty, and, and make sure to discuss it with your healthcare team, what, whatever is uh, intended to be taken from the supplement side. And, Christina, um, where can we find information about recent advancements in malt lymphoma treatment? Um, recent advances in malt lymphoma treatment. I usually say a good place to start is um, to ask your oncologist or your doctor um, to see if they have uh, patient resources. Um, the Lymphoma Society, uh, Lymphoma Research Foundation, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, uh, or Cancer Care uh, potentially may have patient resources as well. Um, there are always going to be publications uh, out there, I think if you just Google, there are a lot of news and publications about malt lymphomas or really about any lymphoma subtype. Uh, I do caution about just um, Googling because we really don't know uh, the, where that information is 
from and whether they're truly hospitalized. And so I usually tell my patients, you know, ask me, and and I can vet that information for you before before you read it. Excellent. Um, I would just add um, the uh, Lymphoma Research Foundation put together a meeting on marginal zone lymphoma, which included malt lymphoma in 2019, and we've had two other meetings. I had the privilege of co-chairing with the uh, International Extranodal Lymphoma Study Group, and the uh, the LRF has some very reasonable, very good information out. So I would really, and my disclosure is I'm a member of the SAB and past chair of the Scientific Advisory Board also, but I, what, the date, what we have in there is very clean. Thank you. Wonderful resources. And um, for Dr. Evans, I know that HPV can lead to cervical cancer depending on the type of HPV. Are there viruses that can lead to NHL? Yeah, the, I'll say the quick answer is yes, but with a, a lot of nuances, meaning that there are certain lymphoma subtypes that are virally mediated. Uh, for example, I'll just name a couple. One would be Epstein-Barr virus. Um, another one would be uh, HTLV-1-2. Um, that's associated with something called uh, adult T-cell leukemia lymphoma. The issue with that is it's not as if, in this case, it's, uh, it's the HTLV-1 or even EBV, that certainly if everybody uh, who contracts the virus will develop that. In fact, the vast majority will not ultimately develop lymphoma. It's, it's one that, yes, these lymphomas, when you have it, are, can be linked to it, but it really goes to the point of epidemiology. In other words, what causes lymphoma? And, and, and really the quick answer is we don't know exactly. There certainly are some really strong leading hypotheses. And in some lymphoma subtypes, viruses and, and other infections for that matter, it was mentioned that malt lymphoma, well, H. pylori in the stomach is some, some of the malt lymphomas in the stomach or H. pylori, that, that's a bacteria related. But it's, it's really a puzzle that, that our epidemiologists are, are working to put together where envi viruses and other infections are one part, and it's trying to figure out all the other pieces of that puzzle. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Haberman. Um, I've had chronic upper respiratory infections my whole life. I'm curious if this increased my risk of developing NHL. As best we understand in 2023, the answer, I think, is no. Um, I've had a similar issue all my life, chronic bronchitis, so I've had some interest in following the topic in some ways, peripherally, so uh, at least that would be my response. And um, I think um, we're sort of winding down, so I'm going to ask um, our speakers, if, um, starting with Dr. Evans, um, if you could comment on just takeaways from today's program, what um, the participants you take away from today's program. So, sure. Dr. Dr. Mosner, yeah, it's just uh, also thank you for, for this, again, forum to talk and educate. And I'll say I, I even always learn something when I, when I hear Tom Haberman and, and, and also Dr. Poe here. It's, it's, we learn from each other, and it's just such a, um, an evolving field in, in a good way as 
the diagnosis staging gets better and more particular and precise, and the treatments, we hope, become obviously better. When I say better, meaning not just more effective, but better tolerated and, and more targeted so we can avoid those long-term side effects or, or, or even acute side effects. And it's just such an exciting field and a great spectrum of colleagues, not just in the United States globally, because this is a global effort, and it's, is, as my colleagues know, it's a small world, and, and we all know each other, and if we are going to continue to make the advances, it's, it's how we do in collaborating together. So it's just always refreshing and exciting to hear these recaps like this, so thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, Dr. Haverman? Tom. What I tried to do, do is to uh, go through in uh, 10 minutes the therapeutic interventions in four diseases, and I hope I came across with the idea there's so much that has been accomplished and so much that's so effective that the, the prognosis is a whole different thing than, than 10 years ago. And that would be the real message. I agree with Andy. If you if you Google Andy and I up, our names will find us on papers together where we've collaborated. And uh, the lymphoma world's a pretty collaborative world. We all compete with each other in a certain way, and we all work together in a certain way. So it's it's uh, please don't worry that we don't try to work together and across both oceans. We collaborate uh, with Europe and other and uh, the other side of the ocean, the other ocean also. Excellent. Thank you. And Christina? Thanks. Um, I completely agree with what has been said. Uh, thank you, Andy and Tom. You really summarized uh, well. Really, it's, it's a really exciting time um, to be in lymphoma research uh, and lymphoma as well. There's just so much going on, many new drugs being developed. Um, it, every week, I feel like there's a new email about a new approval. Um, and really, at the end, that really does translate um, to patient care. We are, we're all doing this um, to improve patient care, to um, make sure that lymphoma will eventually, hopefully, become a disease that um, we don't have to be afraid of, that nobody will die of. Um, and that's what we're going to work towards. But really... We're doing a great job in the meantime of getting there. Thanks. Well, thank you, and I want to thank our speakers who've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants, too, for asking such wonderful questions, which really enhanced our program today. And in, in summing up today's program, I would just like to uh, comment that none of you are alone in coping with a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. There are many organizations out there that can help you. Uh, the Lymphoma Research Foundation. Uh, leukemia and Lymphoma um, Society. Um, there's just a number of organizations out there, um, and we'll actually be um, sending you, um, after today's program, in a couple of days, we will send you a Survey Monkey evaluation, and then that evaluation will be an evalu it's evaluation of the program, but it also will include many resources that were mentioned during the program today, um, and even some additional ones as well, with their websites and their, um, and how to how to uh, call them as well. Um, many of them offer tremendous services. Um, and so I want you to take advantage of that. Also, we don't want anyone to feel alone in coping with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, any type of lymphoma. We want you to now know that you're part of the community of support, including your healthcare team, 
And also, of course, your um, healthcare team consists of so many different members of that team that you can consult with if any concerns or questions you may have. You may also contact, of course, Cancer Care, uh, the Memorial Research Foundation, the Chemo Improvement Society, and just many other organizations which we will be listing for you um, in the resources that we send you. And um, also, as we conclude today, I would not want any one of you to feel you're um, alone in coping, you know, with with lymphoma, I want you to know that you're now part of the community of support and we're all here to help you. You're not alone. That's a very important message that we want you to leave with. I want to thank all of you for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day. <laughs>